Hello and welcome back. We hope you enjoyed the last few episodes that featured our Memorial School of Pharmacy students. I certainly learned a lot while helping them prepare and record the segments. This month, Kathy and I are getting back in rhythm for this episode on the notorious QT prolongation warnings. All right, Mike, let's start with some background. A standard electrocardiogram, or ECG tracing, will show waves, and they're named P, QRS complex, and T waves. They represent the electrical activity of the heart. By looking at it over time, we can see how long it takes different parts of the heart to essentially generate an electrical signal and rest before the next one. From the QRS to T waves, we're specifically observing the ventricles in action. Right. So the QT interval is the duration of the ventricle's electrical activity. A normal QT is around 420 milliseconds and is quite variable between people. But if this becomes longer, it increases the chance that the ventricle gets an earlier electrical signal. And typically, if it exceeds 500 milliseconds, it can be very, very bad. In the late 1990s, more reports started coming out about drugs causing prolonged QT and the often fatal consequence of torsade de point, a form of arrhythmia where the ventricle beats quickly and abnormally. This led to some international recommendations of what to do about drugs that exhibited the potential to prolong QT during clinical trials. The term torsades de point, for listeners who don't know French like myself, was coined back in 1966 by French physician Francois Desertin and roughly translates to twisting of the points. Now, I can't read an ECG, but I imagine those waves twisting, turning, and being all erratic. I wonder if he had known what an important thing it would have become in drug development and research. He probably would have named it after himself. And in the English world, maybe we'd come to learn these as desertan waves, which despite how dangerous they are, sounds more palatable. Anyways, we digress. It wasn't until 2005 that an international consensus was struck on a plan to require drug manufacturers to specifically evaluate whether new drugs would prolong QT. This document was adopted by the FDA in the US, as well as Health Canada in Canada. Essentially, drug manufacturers would have to conduct clinical trials with healthy individuals and see if the medication would lead to QT prolongation. You get about 100 volunteers to take the drug at various doses, and you do ECGs before and after. If there's no change in the ECG, then great. If the drug causes an increase of 5 to 10 milliseconds or more, then you're going to need another study. If it increases by 20 milliseconds, there would be a stop to any further clinical trials or development. Any effect of the drug would be reported, from no effect to whether it prolonged QT by a little or a lot. And for better or worse, all of this information is now populated into product labels or monographs. I say better or worse because it's great that the information is there, but also this leads to minor effects that are often inconsequential being placed into the pamphlets and handouts that we might give to patients to read. And from a pharmacist and physician or nurse perspective, our automated drug interaction and adverse effect notification systems will start to warn us about them. Again, that's all good from a safety perspective, but seeing these notifications for a quarter or more of the medications you prescribe or counsel on on a day-to-day basis can be quite tiresome. Think about your smartphones or tablets, and imagine getting a notification every 5 or 10 minutes that requires you to click or tap before it goes away. It's information overload or fatigue, 
and soon you may start to ignore most of them and just click it or even turn it off completely. Now I'm probably exaggerating a little. It's not like health professionals completely ignore and don't think about these warnings. Of course we consider them. And here lies the second problem. Prolonged QT is a contextual issue. Let's talk about the individual risks or reasons when QT prolongation, or torsades de point, might be worrisome. There are a lot of risk factors, but we'll highlight the common ones. So there are basically about eight risk factors to consider. Number one is female sex. Well, of course, us females seem to always draw the short straw. We've known that there were ECG differences between sexes for over a hundred years. The physiological or biomedical reason for it hasn't been fully uncovered. What we do know is the end point, that in general, females have a longer baseline QT interval, about 20 milliseconds longer. We also know that these differences are not present at birth, and it might be something that occurs later, during or after puberty. So it could be hormonal too. For example, a decrease in males with no change for females, or a lengthening for females. Perhaps it is this baseline difference that makes it more likely for females to have torsade de point compared to males. Either way, it's important to take this into consideration when it comes to medications. And this next risk factor shouldn't be a surprise. The number two risk factor is older age. There are a number of reasons why we need to be concerned about age when it comes to QT prolongation. Aside from the fact that elderly patients tend to have more medical conditions and use more medications, physiologically, their ECGs also differ. Like we discussed for females, the QT interval is also longer in the elderly. Reasons for this are mostly unknown. Perhaps it's the aging heart muscle or changes in the autonomic nervous system that ultimately affect electrical conduction. But overall, this means that older age means higher risk. And number three is heart rate. QT intervals are often corrected based on heart rate, which is why we see it written as QTC. This is because heart rate inversely affects QT. The slower the heart rate, the longer the QT interval. And this makes intuitive sense because everything speeds up when the rate is faster and everything slows down when the heart beats slower. So using a mathematical correction to normalize the rate to 60 beats per minute is a common practice. For our patients, that means a slow heart rate, or bradycardia, may put them at risk of QT prolongation. Risk factor number four is electrolyte disturbances. Our cells depend on a delicate balance of electrolytes to function, and usually our bodies do a great job of keeping everything operational. When the balance is thrown off, it can negatively affect the electrical conduction in the heart. In some medical conditions or situations where you might get electrolyte disturbances, such as hypokalemia or low potassium, or hypomagnesemia, the changes to electrical conduction can be problematic. We have to watch out for certain medications that can cause electrolyte disturbances, such as diuretics like furosemide or lithium for bipolar disorder. The next one, number five, is if patients have previous cardiovascular events or current heart problems. And this goes without saying. If someone has a previous heart attack, stroke, or has heart failure, or has significant cardiovascular disease, the risk is also higher. But what about the common condition atrial fibrillation? Atrial fibrillation is the fast and erratic beating of the atrium and has its own set of cardiovascular risks. 
there must be some relationship there as we talked about heart rate being a factor. I thought about it and looked into it. It seems like a longer QT may be associated with atrial fibrillation, but the precise relationships are still being studied. Two of the difficulties are the variability of electrical conduction in these conditions at different points in time and the patient's life, and the fact that we use ECGs to make these diagnoses, which can also change depending on the situation. What's more important are the medications used as antiarrhythmics, some of which can prolong QT and intentionally do so. And that leads into the next risk. The next risk is having more than one QT prolonging drug on board. And this is where pharmacists really play a big role. If you've ever looked at the list of drugs that can cause QT prolongation, it would scare you. Last I checked, the list has over 150 medications. And aside from the obvious antiarrhythmics, some of the most common culprits are certain antidepressants, antibiotics, and antipsychotics, and there really isn't a commonality between these classes of medications. This makes it sometimes hard to predict if something will cause a problem or not. We also know that the dose of a medication can be a factor, with generally higher doses causing more problems. For example, the antiemetic ondansetron, used at higher than standard doses, can cause prolonged QT. That's not to say that everyone will have this problem, because some people are on 5 or 6 of these without any QT prolongation. But either way, if you're using more than one of these medications together, it is something to think about. And number 7 are drugs that interfere with other drugs. And here is where it gets even more complicated. What if you're on one medication that increases your risk for QT prolongation, but you need to use another one that interacts with the first one? Or worse, inadvertently use another one that has that interaction. This is something that pharmacists are always on the lookout for, and despite the computer warnings, a big part of our daily decision making. The main problem is when one drug increases the blood levels of another, such as through a drug absorption or elimination effect. Like we mentioned before, the dose of medication is important, so when something like this happens, we have to think about how much more the body will see of the medication, and more importantly, whether it will get to the amounts necessary to prolong QT. If anything, these are the more difficult effects to find because they can also be variable, and depending on the patient, sometimes inevitable. But we'll talk about this a little bit more in a second. For now, we go to the last risk we'll discuss. So the last risk is number eight, and that's genetic predisposition. This is the one thing that we really can't control. We are entering this age of genetic testing. You can send a small sample to a company and get pages of results back. These results purport to tell you all of your health risks, drug sensitivities, the capability of metabolizing drugs, and importantly for us today, your genetic profile and whether you have congenital long QT syndrome. In Newfoundland and Labrador, our population is small, and for many years rather isolated, so rare genetic disorders can be more common. It's called the founder effect, when people in an area are descendants of a small number of people. Some have been identified, like arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, or ARVC, which made headlines years ago because it led to young people getting heart attacks. Luckily, Congenital long QT does not seem to be more prevalent in our province. Nationally, about 1 in 2,500 people have genetic mutations that are associated with long QT. It may seem like a lot of people, but don't worry, 
most of the time there are no problems and you wouldn't even notice it. For many medications, it also won't be a problem. However, there are some that should be avoided if you have congenital long QT, such as the common allergy medication diphenhydramine or Benadryl, or common antimicrobials like ciprofloxacin. All right, so what do we do with all this information? Remember when we talked about the 100 or so people taking the drug in a QT clinical trial? Well, think about when this medication goes out to millions of people, some of whom have congenital long QT or have the risk factors we talked about. What do we do then? And what do we do when over 150 medications are known to potentially cause this problem? In an ideal world, we could just avoid all of these medications. But some of these medications are life-saving and necessary for many people. The answer? It boils down to an individual patient, their individual risk, and the absolute need for a pharmacist's assessment. However, we're not alone in figuring this out. There are some tools we'll share on our webpage that can help categorize and assess patient risk, such as one out of Purdue University. We can also use an online database called Credible Meds that gives us a risk rating for individual medications. I'll expand on Credible Meds because it's super useful and free with an email signup. It can tell you whether a medication is known to prolong QT and cause torsades, whether it's known to prolong QT and possibly cause torsades, whether certain conditions while using the drug cause torsades, and which ones to really avoid in congenital long QT. They also have lists of clinical factors or medical conditions that may be associated with prolonged QT in the medical literature. And yes, there's an app for it too. I've used Credible Meds quite a lot at the clinic. Just a few days ago, I had a psychiatrist referral. He was wondering what antipsychotic would be safest in his patient who was also taking Domperidone 40 milligrams daily. When using Credible Meds, it was determined that olanzapine is the antipsychotic with the lowest risk, being in the conditional risk category, whereas other agents, like risperidone, are in the possible risk category. Olanzapine was the best option. However, we could also work together to decrease the risk further by determining if the domperidone is required, if another agent, such as an H2RA, could work, if just treating GERD. And if the combination was necessary, we could ask if the dosage of domperidone could be lowered. No matter where you practice, you're destined to come across issues surrounding QT prolongation for your patients. Absolutely. Here in Newfoundland and Labrador, we are lucky to have the electronic health record. Prior to this, as a community pharmacist who would come across potential QT prolongation warnings during the dispensing process, I felt I wasn't really armed as best as I wanted to be. I didn't know what the patient's baseline QTC was, if it was measured through a recent ECG at all. I didn't know whether or not the antibiotic that was being prescribed was the only possible agent, or if there was another antibiotic that this patient's culture was susceptible to. Now it is a whole new world. In my community practice earlier this week, I had a 78-year-old lady who presented with a prescription for ciprofloxacin for a urinary tract infection. Upon dispensing, the warning came up that the patient was at risk for QT prolongation due to currently taking esomeprazole and citalopram. I could easily bring up her health record and determine her QTC, 
In this case, it was 422 milliseconds. Knowing that we could put her above the threshold that we're worried about in females of 460 milliseconds if the ciprofloxacin was ordered, I wanted to see if there were any other options for treating her UTI. I could view the culture and sensitivity. In this case, I could also see that it was susceptible to sulfatrim and nitrofurantoin. Both are safe, although sulfatrim should be avoided in patients with congenital QT. So just to err on the side of caution, I contacted the physician to get the prescription changed to nitrofurantoin. I also suggested switching esomeprazole to rabeprazole, as it doesn't have the association with QT risk and could be safer if she is to continue on PPI therapy with the citalopram. We as pharmacists can certainly play our part with this added access to information. And this makes me think about when I was practicing in Ontario without access to an electronic health record. I would be dispensing methadone every day to the same patients over and over again. And methadone is known to increase or prolong QT as well. But I had no idea whether it would for the individual patients that came in. And certain drug classes have multiple agents that cause QT prolongation, but there are usually options. For example, in antidepressants, TCAs have the greatest risk, followed by SSRIs, but there is variation within the SSRI class, with paroxetine, fluoxetine, and sertraline being safer than citalopram and escitalopram. And like outlined in the case I mentioned, there are usually other alternatives to antibiotics, just check the culture and sensitivity. If you're not sure if an agent prolongs QT, just check with credible meds. And don't forget to have a look for renal impairment, hepatic impairment, electrolyte disturbances, structural heart disease like heart failure, and also bradycardia, as all these play an important part in assessing risk. Always recommend a baseline ECG if a patient is started on a new medication that has the potential to cause QT prolongation if they haven't had one done recently. And the ECG should be assessed on a regular basis. But I have a question for you, Kathy. Let's backtrack a little bit. If the normal QT interval is less than 450, but people have a range of values, then if it increases by 10 milliseconds, is it dangerous for someone who sits around 400 milliseconds? Well, it could be. Conditions change. Let's say it is added, and it only goes up to 410 from 400. Then the patient could develop hypokalemia from an episode of diarrhea. Suddenly, they could be at 480 milliseconds. Any prolongation of over 5 milliseconds can be significant, and some drugs causing only a 5 to 10 millisecond increase have been withdrawn from the market because of cardiac concerns. The common definition of drug-induced QTC prolongation is a 5 to 10 millisecond increase. To put this in perspective, sotalol, an antiarrhythmic, can prolong the QTC by 30 to 40 milliseconds. Also, A recent meta-analysis of 16 articles representing all six currently available SSRIs showed that the SSRIs as a drug class may increase the QTC by about 6.1 milliseconds compared with placebo. But citalopram is the worst, and it has the longest QT prolongation at 10.58 milliseconds. In addition to causing the largest change in QTC interval of all of the SSRIs, citalopram has been linked to numerous episodes of torsade de point, and dosing limits have been imposed by the FDA. Thanks, Kathy. That's the answer I was looking for. We hope we've clarified QT prolongation for you and made sense of all the warnings out there. 
it's something to think about for the many drugs that can cause it and your individual patients on them. But that's our time today. If you'd like us to talk about this more or any other topic that you have questions about, send us an email at medthread at mun.ca. And we'll return next month with a topic that our new pharmacy resident is interested about. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.